Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is coming up to four o'clock and thanks to Chris for great voices. That's not a good start, is it? Today, the anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear disaster, six years on. The Port Phillip Baykeeper with Neil Blake. What's happening out of Western Sahara on the northwest coast of Africa? I was speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And it's the first anniversary of the assassination of a human rights and environmental activist, Berta Kakaris in Honduras one year ago. Are we speaking with Beverly Bell from Other Worlds? But first, he's back, Mr. Kevin Healy, and this is his week. A week, Jane Listener, when we are again shattered by the selfishness and ingratitude of lazy, avaricious workers, complaining at that enlightened decision of fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it, to cut their wages if they work Sundays, showing they just refuse to accept we now live in a 24-7 world. The con mission itself, and Parliament for that matter, setting the example by sitting and meeting and working their guts out every Sunday, our the church door and straight to work without even asking for penalty rates and the big sporting businesses like the AFL announcing they'll play all their matches on Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday and the government which had nothing to do with the decision and neither supports nor opposes it has righteously attacked the Socialist Party and evil, evil, evil trade unions for opposing cutting wages to the lowest paid and the government which neither supports nor opposes the decision has urged caring employers to campaign explaining the benefits to all of us in slashing wages for the lowest paid and the Minister for Free Hills to Workers sorry, um, caring business class relations Macalia cost the workers who, like the government and as part of, neither supports nor opposes the determination said the sundry chambers of profits have discussed the disgraceful misinformation campaign being waged by unions in relation to the penalty rate decision and the mind boggles at what the government and Macalia would say if they weren't neutral and supported the decision and to prove their point about the ingratitude and naivety of low-paid workers whose wages are being cut, we haven't heard one, not one worker whose wages are being cut, laud the decision and tell us how we'll all be so much better off because their wages are being slashed and it's been left to caring employers and financial journalists who know all about these things and the government, which neither supports nor opposes it, to laud the decision and tell us how we'll all be so much better off explain the benefits, explain all these caring employers who couldn't afford the penalty rates will now be able to employ lots and lots more workers which, if they did, would cost them lots more than one worker's penalty rates, but they say it, so it must be true. And after all, they know it's a 24-7 world and people want to enjoy family and leisure time on Sunday. 
which might seem to be a contradiction as well, but it can't be because they say it isn't. And these selfish workers who can't enjoy family time or leisure want to argue it isn't a 24-7 world. And the true blue Aussie capitalist review summed it up. P1 headline, penalty rate reality, riles, Labor Club. Labor Club, clearly a pejorative. Workers, evil unions, the Socialist Party denying reality. While the caring employers and the capitalist review and the government, which neither supports nor opposes, and the bench itself are all reason, all reality. And of course, caring employers and the government, which neither supports nor opposes, having won this round, wouldn't dream of launching a campaign to slash low-paid workers' wages even more, slash penalty rates further, even though they know it would be good for all of us. That's what we love about them. They're so easily satisfied. And Gerard Phillips up my bank account, a caring business class law expert, formerly of the Institute for Public Very, Very Private Affairs, who constantly attempts to alert us just how evil unions and workers are, explaining how the cuts are good for all of us, described them as a modest change. Low-paid workers, evil unions and the Socialist Party should be thrilled about and I thought I'm prepared to bet Gerard just mightn't consider a proportional cut to his immodest salary a modest change. And Monday's announcement there had been a $13 billion increase in quarterly company profits alongside the problem of slow wages growth, a problem we keep pointing out seems easily fixed. Anyway, this which bank, which used to be our bank economist Christina Cliftons of Profits, in other words an expert, said despite slow wages growth, none of the windfalls should be wasted on workers, who after all made no more than an incidental contribution to the windfall like providing 100% of it. No, the windfall profit should be reinvested in the interests of shareholders. And again, I thought, I reckon we can safely bet Christina hasn't had a problem with slow wages growth either. Actually, big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull's neither support nor oppose is a bit surprising, as, as it was only two weeks ago he attacked Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition for not being radical enough back when Little Billy was that most despicable of pejoratives, a union boss. Little Billy had sold out the workers, he said, and for once we'd have to agree with him. Poor Malcolm was so upset, which shows Malcolm wants unions to be more radical, expressed the same day as he passed a law making it illegal for unions to be radical. Well, that's an exaggeration, illegal for unions to be unions. Unions have a role in the workplace, but not if they persist in acting like unions, he outlined his objections. So his neutrality in backing the caring employers to the hilt is quite surprising, the last thing we'd expect. No connection, the Idiots Academy Award, the Oscar to the week that was. No, no, that wasn't right, that wrong, oh, sorry, wrong card. To PWC, 
which left a bloke called Warren wishing he was down one and not standing on stage in front of his peers and a huge teleaudience. We, we always thought this great world accounting powerhouse we love and respect and whose views we hang on, which our very own government commissioned to advise it on tax avoidance. Smart move, given PWC thinks up most of the ruses, or sorry, legal methods for great good corporate citizen behemoths to avoid, or again, sorry, meet their legal tax obligations, always thought PWC stood for price, whatever use cop from us, but now know it stands for pass the wrong card. How prescient that bloated, filthy, rich financial guru who coined the name, but don't worry, pass the wrong card. Even if you can't get something so simple right, we still trust your every expert word on how to make the greatest little economic order of them all even better for all of you. Uh, sorry, all of us. Last seen in a dance routine swinging around a lamppost singing What a Little Moonlight Can Do. There are people who still reckon that just because US of the UN of the US of the world attorney, attorney general Jeff Petty Sessions denied contact with evil Ruskies when in fact he had lied when his very sensible explanation proves he didn't lie. When as a senator he talked to people he explained he was not talking to people. The senator was. So when he spoke to people as a senator, he was not talking to them. He, Jeff Petty Sessions that is, was not talking to the people the senator was talking to, or grammatically to whom, but what the hell. So how many people did you talk to in your years as a senator? Not one. Well, that's put that to bed and we hope no one doubts him, even though he makes our Attorney General George Brandy's brains convoluted legalese and sober explanations of why he didn't say what he said and or do what he did look like legal precedent material. Another piece of logic as only one notion person that appalling Hoonsun can express logic over that preference swap deal with the caring business class party in Western True Blue Aussie. It's not a deal! Appalling screeched upon landing in Western, Western Australia or WA to support the giant mind one notion, no notion candidates. Bit of background here. The Caring Business Class Party did the deal out of desperation given it was and probably is headed for electoral oblivion. That appalling clearly thought it was pretty smart at the time. Street cunning, rat cunning smart. But... Both their fortunes in the polls have crashed since the deal, showing it has upset their respective supporters and potential voters. So patent a fact, it obviously even registered with the vacuums that passes her advisers. Hence, that appalling couldn't wait to get off the plane before screeching, It's not a deal! It's to shore up our support! Well, it did the sure bit. It sure pissed off the potential voters. But thank goodness that appalling cleared it up. So a preference swap deal is not a deal as clearly as talking to the evil Ruskies is not talking to the evil Ruskies. Finally, sadly, on a serious note, the death of our wonderful 3CR colleague Trevor Grant, a fine journalist whose politics have been ignored by the tributes in the mainstream media. No acknowledgement of his dedication to the refugee issue, his work on refugee radio on this station, his research and writing of a book about the Tamil persecution in Sri Lanka, his campaign to expose sport, and he was a leading sports writer in the mainstream media, campaign to expose the capitalist takeover of big 
sport. His role as a young bloke as a draft resistor. We will acknowledge all that. We will acknowledge that capitalism murdered him at too young an age and asbestos-related disease thanks to the two major newspaper outlets and Hardy's, but more he will be sadly missed at 3CR as a presenter and more particularly as a delightful human being. Good afternoon. This 11th of March will be the sixth anniversary of the Japanese Fukushima nuclear disaster which at least one commentator described as worse than a disaster. Associate Professor Tilman Ruff from the Nossel Institute for Public Health at Melbourne University has always expressed grave concerns about the Japanese nuclear industry and also about the health of the people from the area and their ability to return to their previous lives. Tilman, take us back to... The 11th of March, 2011, in Fukushima, Japan. What was the warning? Well, there wasn't a lot of warning, but what happened was that there was a massive earthquake off the coast of Japan, the northeast coast, about 60 kilometres offshore. And the earthquake itself caused considerable damage, really right across from Hokkaido in the north to, you know, almost down to, to Tokyo. Sometime later... About three quarters of an hour later, the tsunami wave hit. And this was an absolutely massive tsunami, multiple waves that hit this already devastated area that caused essentially meltdowns in each of the four reactors. There were, there were four reactors on the Fukushima Daiichi site that were that are next to each other down by the quite close to the sea. There were two others, numbers five and six, that were not working. Number four had just had the fuel taken out of it, thank goodness. So there were three of them, one, numbers one, two and three, operating at the time. So what happened essentially was that all the off-site power went off, emergency backup generators kicked in, but the problem was that they all, the whole plant, everything, all of the electronics, all of the pumps, all of the generators, everything got totally devastated by this massive tsunami. So the, the backup power failed, there was no cooling for the plants or for the spent fuel pools where the vast amounts of spent radioactive fuel sit very hot, radioactive and need constant cooling. So the volatile, the gases, products of the the reaction of the, the fuel and air and water exploded, blew the tops off the reactor buildings and those three reactors, one, two and three, melted down. All of the conventional wisdom and what the company says, what the government is still saying, is that the meltdowns occurred not because of the earthquake but because of the tsunami. However, the best and really the benchmark in terms of the the most authoritative and independent investigation of what happened in Fukushima was an investigation that the National Parliament, the Diet in Japan, commissioned. It was the first time... Can you imagine that the National Parliament had ever commissioned an independent investigation commission? And they said that there was evidence that leakages were already occurring, radioactivity was leaking, damage had occurred after the earthquake hit and before the tsunami. And some international atmospheric scientists who closely followed and then analysed the radioactive releases also confirmed the same thing, that there was some leakage that occurred 
after the earthquake struck, which has very important implications because although in Japan most power plants are near the coast and therefore vulnerable to both earthquakes and tsunamis, around the world a lot of nuclear power plants are inland, so they're vulnerable to earthquakes but not to tsunamis. That's essentially how the accident happened, and it was a combination of incredibly bad design and possibly poor construction. This plant had actually been excavated down. It was There's a hill there on the coast and then it drops quite steeply down and that had been excavated to build these four plants closest to the coast simply for cost containment reasons. It was cheaper to build them lower down and have to pump things less distance. Really stupid in the context of a coast that historically we know is one of the most earthquake-prone regions of the world. In addition, TEPCO, along with a number of other nuclear power generators, because of some insider releases, it became public about a decade ago that there was a whole ongoing series of safety information, falsifications and safety breaches that had occurred across TEPCO plants that actually led to the resignation of the, the TEPCO chairman. And the Fukushima Daiichi plant was one of those where the safety breaches and data falsification, including on the construction, occurred. So it's quite possible that the construction and materials of the plant may have been shoddy, as well as being an incredibly stupid design with a seawall that was designed for a tsunami of 7 metres. The wave that hit the plant was over 15 metres, and building all of the infrastructure down at sea level And the other really stupid, in retrospect, design aspect of these reactors was putting the spent fuel pools, so the big swimming pools where the spent fuel sits, right on top of the reactors. So it's, you know, from an engineering point of view, it makes it easy to just pick up the the spent fuel rods and stick them in the pool when every year and a half or so the whole fuel rods in the reactor are changed. But it makes the two highly vulnerable as a package and anything that goes wrong with the reactor is likely to affect the spent fuel pools. And they're more important in a way from a health point of view, from an environmental risk point of view, because 70% of the total radioactivity on the site was in those spent fuel pools and they don't have the multiple carefully engineered levels of containment that the reactors do. They're just big open swimming pools sitting in a building that's essentially like a you know a shopping centre building. It's just basically a big shed. So not a lot of protection. And what happened to that information that was leaked? I mean, that became public about a decade ago because of insider leaks. So what happened to it? Not much. The problem in Japan is that, I mean, it's true, you know, there are high levels of corruption and, and collusion in the nuclear industry around the world, but nowhere, perhaps, are they as stark as they are in Japan and the contrast between what most people regard as an, you know, a very technically sophisticated democratic you know, society, the contrast between the, the level of dysfunction and the collusive and corrupt relationships between government, industry and regulators in Japan is really blatant, including the commission to, say, to call it a nuclear village. Basically, you know, there are revolving doors and not a lot of independence between them. So, in fact, not much happened when those releases, um, those scandals became public. The chair of TEPCO was forced to resign, as were some other senior executives around the industry, but essentially they carried on business as usual with the support of government and a very tame regulator that was full of of ex-industry people. But surely the the, um, alarm bells must have been ringing outside of the country? 
Indeed, and the International Atomic Energy Agency had been on to Japan for quite a number of years saying there's a whole lot of aspects of international best practice about the way that you run your reactors that isn't good enough and you really should lift your game. But, of course, the International Atomic Energy Agency has a very conflicted role because not only does it regulate the industry and particularly with the specific purpose of trying to prevent so-called peaceful nuclear facilities, nuclear power plants and enrichment plants being used to build nuclear weapons, but at the same time it's also promoting the the very industry that's spreading the means to produce nuclear weapons. So it's caught and it has no no power of sanction or punishment. I mean, all it can do is make recommendations uh, to government and, um, you know, if there are major concerns, for example, in relation to, you know, Iran's nuclear program, then it can refer matters to the Security Council, but it has no powers to enforce any of its recommendations. Let's go back to the 11th of March 2011. What happened to the workers at the plant? The workers, um, it's an interesting uh, situation with the workers because essentially they, they were there and most of them stayed. Some of them got pretty high levels of exposure and over the continuing years since then, there have been well over 40,000 workers in total who've had to work on that dirty and dangerous clean-up job. And even TEPCO optimistically says that this is clean-up is going to take at least 40 years, and that's you know really an optimistic... They might as well say anything. I mean, there's no way of proving that. It's very... Nothing about this has gone to plan. It's very likely that, that it will be much longer. This is an extraordinarily complex mess of four reactors and the spent fuel associated with them being severely damaged that's you know it's the most complicated and difficult nuclear disaster to deal with that's ever happened the site is intensely radioactive and there's some recent information that when they've been able to get robots in that that show that the levels of radioactivity in some cases are even higher than they previously were such that in many parts of the plant a couple of minutes of exposure would be a lethal dose for a worker you know, you'd be dead in a few weeks. So they haven't even been able to send robots in to monitor the situation effectively because the radioactivity has been so high that the robots have not been able to function, let alone human beings. So it's a very um, difficult and dangerous working environment. And so one of the, the things that the nuclear industry has always done in Japan and continues to do is engage multiple levels of subcontractors. So if you look at the at the worker data in, in the nuclear industry in Japan, only about 10% of the total workforce are actually officially company employees. And, you know, there are problems and gaps there, but they do have some training and some support and some monitoring. But there are about 10 times as many subcontractors, many of whom are engaged through criminal organisations, through some pretty dodgy networks, often multiple layers, six, seven, eight layers of subcontracting. They're often the most disadvantaged people. And these workers have poor training and support and are really essentially expendable. And they're not on the books officially. And they might work in one plant one day and somewhere else the next week. And because there's no radiation register, lifetime worker register in Japan, they can 
you know, get a dose at one plant that where they're advised, hey, that's enough for you, you should, you know, go and do something else now, but they'll just show up at another plant the following week and nobody will know. And there's also been instances where workers have deliberately been instructed by companies to put little lead shields around. Some of them have manufactured little lead shields that sit over the radiation badges so that nobody will know how much people have been exposed to. So those subcontractors... I just looked at the, the data, the most recently released data on, on... These are the official measurements for worker doses. There are still about 10 times as many subcontractors as there are official employees. And on average, they still get five times as much as the, the employees. And their maximum doses are, are about double. Just on an average, their maximum doses are about double. And in Fukushima plant, the readings are the highest. So they're well over double the maximum permissible dose of radiation for workers per year. What's the likelihood of them leading a, a long life? They're getting some considerable doses. You know, the the recommended, uh, just to sort of put it in perspective, we all get about two, two and a half millisieverts is a sort of a dose of biologically effective ionising radiation per year from food, water, from the rocks around us, from cosmic sources. Um, we get another couple of millisieverts from, on average from medical exposures. The recommended maximum dose for a member of the public that you should get without a good medical reason for getting it is one millisievert. For workers, the maximum recommended level is 20 millisieverts per year. Those are not levels below which there's no risk. It's really important to say that. And we now know that the risks are greater than we previously thought, substantially. So 20 millisieverts per year increases your risk of cancer quite significantly. If you're, a, you know, if you're a young bloke and you've got 10 or 20 years of plans to work in the industry, it's the same for uranium miners in Australia, the chances of your occupation killing you are not trivial. You know, they're 1 or 2 or 3 or 4% over your lifetime. They're not, they're not trivial. Uh, there's already been two cases of leukaemia and a case of thyroid cancer in a, in a Fukushima clean-up worker that the government officially has recognised as work-related and provided compensation for. They apply a very, uh, very conservative standard. But there's no doubt that these workers, apart from the incredible stress and difficulty of working in this dirty, dangerous, contaminated environment where you know, they have to dress up and wear these very hot, cumbersome, awkward suits and protective gear that make it difficult to work. They've got to constantly be on their guard. You know, they're trucked in and trucked out. Many of them are rather isolated from, from family and social support. Over that period, it's pretty stressful work. It's not the kind of work that if you've got another option, you will do. So they tend to be the, the poorest and most disadvantaged workers who often aren't properly supported and trained. And there's no doubt that, that their work in that industry will increase their risks of long-term cancer and chronic disease. And we're going to need a lot of these workers. I mean, there's already been, by the end of 2015, there'd already been 40,000 workers involved in the clean-up. This is going to go on for another half a century at least. They're, they're actually already running out of skilled personnel who can, who can do this difficult and dangerous work, but it's, it's not going to go away. What was the area surrounding the plant which was affected and how many people lived in that area and what animals were living in that area? It's a very beautiful part of Japan, the area around the plant. It's, um, it's quite hilly. It's 
mainly sort of widely scattered towns and, and villages involved in beef, milk, uh, a whole range of, of fruit crops and, and vegetables, uh, very well known around Japan for its produce, beautiful lakes, beautiful foliage, beautiful mountains. And it, like a lot of areas in rural Japan, a lot of families that are very attached, you know, with long histories of thousands of years, in many cases, um, attached to those that, that land where they're living. Um, within the 80 kilometres, 50 miles, 80 kilometre zone that every international agency, including the Australian government, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the US Nuclear Regulatory Commission, when the accident happened, they were all saying everybody should, all foreigners should evacuate within 80 kilometres. Within 80 kilometres, there are about 2 million people living including a couple of quite large towns, Fukushima, Koryama uh, in particular, that are inland. And the plume, although the initial response was just to sort of create this expanding circle of like ripples in a pond of concentric circles, you know, the more they realised the, how bad it was, they kept expanding the, the evacuation zone from 3 kilometres to 10 kilometres to 20 kilometres in the sort of expanding circle. But of course... Because of the dysfunction of and the chaos created by the accident, the difficulties of moving around, the difficulties of communication, the breakdown in power supplies, because of lots of dead and injured people, and because Japan had not prepared in the you know in the totally mythical belief that a serious nuclear accident wasn't going to happen, so they didn't need to prepare for it. There had been no evacuation plans and no preparations either for workers or local people, so people didn't know where to go or what to do if an accident happened. And the plume didn't just, you know, raid out in concentric circles. The, pr the plume of radioactivity, there were several releases over a couple of days. There was a really big one on the night of the 14th, 15th of March, and there was another big one about a week later on the 20th, 21st of March. And luckily, I guess for, for the people in Japan, most of an estimated 80% of the fallout went over the Pacific Ocean and was diluted and became a lot less radioactive before it hit North America and, and Europe. So they got a relatively light dusting. But the plume moved inland and northwards, right towards the city of Fukushima. And then the wind changed and it moved right down that main populated valley, down the cities. That There are three cities there that have two to 300,000 people in them each. So Fukushima and Koryama got, and Nihonmatsu got, significant doses of radioactivity, actually, and a lot of people were there. The Japanese government only evacuated to 20 kilometres, and then when it was discovered largely by environmental organisations, I mean, Greenpeace were the ones who discovered about a month after the disaster that a village called Itate, which is off to the northwest and a long way out further than 20 kilometres, was in fact one of the most radioactive areas when the government realised that, that, hey, there was a problem here and they needed to be moved. So a lot of people were moved in a very haphazard way. Some people were moved from a safe area to a less safe area because they just didn't know. Some people were moved six, seven, eight times because it wasn't clear which way to go. It was all somewhat chaotic. So there were... At its peak, about half a million people displaced compulsorily and voluntarily. There are still about 100,000 people now who are evacuated, essentially who can't return to contaminated areas, farms, 
ancestral places, businesses, shops, etc. Who was doing the testing at the time? You're saying Greenpeace was involved. What about the government? Well, the government was doing testing, but because they, you know, they didn't need to prepare for an accident was the was the mantra. They did have a surveillance system around the plant, but it basically didn't work when the power didn't work, and they were, you know, they they didn't have battery systems to to properly support those monitoring stations. After the disaster, there was so much misinformation and so many lies and so much covering up. For example, the government and the company knew within a day or so that that multiple reactors had melted down, but they didn't say that until months later. And this was all geared to trying to minimise panic, trying to reduce the fuss, trying to reduce the number of evacuations, trying to reduce the total cost of the disaster and to try and basically keep TEPCO going and keep nuclear power running in Japan. That was the primary motive. So people lost trust in the government very quickly and dramatically in a way that I think I don't think it ever really happened in Japan before, at least not the post-war period. The government was really tardy about both measuring and telling people what the results were. And so there were a lot of citizen initiatives that got going to, to try and for people to, to monitor their own levels and for non-government organisations to come in and do that work. But that also wasn't planned properly and a lot of it was late and, of course, people are worried about going into contaminated areas. Since then, there's been quite a good citizens-based network set up to monitor radiation called SafeCast, which is a really interesting initiative where people can very cheaply buy high-quality radiation monitors, assemble them themselves, and the devices automatically log radiation doses with the GPS coordinates to a central database. And so there's this extraordinary database now developed. House by house, pretty much in all of the affected areas, you can see exactly what the levels of contamination are. But that's thanks to the work of individuals working together and not, and not the government. The topic for discussion at the moment is the Japanese nuclear disaster at Fukushima on the 11th of March two thousand. And eleven, and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. So, are you saying that people have moved back into those affected areas? There's some areas where people have moved back. The government has really been encouraging people to go back. The government wants this all over. The government wants to portray that Fukushima's done and dusted. Things are getting back to normal uh, in Fukushima. You know, they have an economic interest and a nuclear power industry interest in wanting to do this. But the other driver is the Olympics. When Japan won the bid for the 2020 Olympics to be in Tokyo, it was based on Prime Minister Abe telling the Olympic Committee that Fukushima is totally under control, that nobody has ever been at any risk, nor will they be, and that the area of contaminated water is just in the harbour, you know, 0.3 square kilometres just next to the plant, and this will never be a problem and I've got this all under control. Now, of course, all of that was a lie. But part of what they're trying to do is to is to declare areas safe. They've done a whole lot of, they call it decontamination, but it's largely sort of packaging and redistribution. You can't actually destroy the radioactivity. The total radioactive material that's been released is there. It exists. It just will decay according to the laws of physics and the half-lives of the radioactive materials. And most of what's come out is cesium two kinds of cesium, and that's got either a two- or a 30-year half-life. So 
this stuff is going to be around for, for decades yet. They've been in many public areas, in schools, in playgrounds, in public places and, and around people's homes. There's been a lot of scraping of the surface of the soil, bundling it into big plastic bags, with the, the best ones of which last 8 to 10 years, and then you know, constructing these massive piles of rubbish largely all over the best agricultural land in the prefecture along the river valleys. That certainly helps to reduce somewhat the exposure around people where spent around where people spend most of their time. But clearly you can't decontaminate fields and forests and and mountains and the radioactivity moves around as the water flows. And they've now sort of via a whole range of push and pull mechanisms trying to force people to go back. So they're withdrawing the financial support and compensation for people. So if you've voluntarily evacuated, uh, basically your support will run out, any support that you'll get, which was pretty meagre to start with, will run out at the end of March. And also for people to go back, there's a payment of about $10,000 equivalent Australian as an incentive to encourage people to go back. But the level that they're saying it's safe to go back is 20 millisieverts per year. That's the normal occupational limit for healthy adult workers. They're saying that's okay for pregnant women, young children to live on a long-term basis in an area where they might get up to 20 millisieverts per year. So what's the cumulative effect? Well, there's no other place on earth, no other government that has said it's okay for everybody in the population to get 20 millisieverts per year, even in the bad old days of the post-Soviet Union breakup and dealing with the aftermath of Chernobyl in Belarus and Ukraine. If you lived in an area where you were going to get more than five millisieverts per year, you couldn't live there. So partly they've done this by changing the goalposts and just saying, just arbitrarily, we're just going to increase the permissible level. And there's no scientific basis for that. All of the the scientific evidence points in the direction of increasing risk. But the government of Japan still promulgates this myth that 100 millisieverts of radiation, which is which is about 50 years of natural background radiation, there's no evidence that that increases your risk of cancer, which is a total lie. And all of, you know, there's a vast amount of evidence and every regulatory authority in the world acts on the basis that much lower doses are proven to be harmful. And hence the, you know, the one millisievert per limit year for that's recommended internationally. So Japan is the only government that on a long-term basis is willing to subject its population to such high risks in a setting where it's not going to monitor the outcomes very strongly and we already have evidence of a thyroid cancer outbreak in children emerging. Who's monitoring the children? The one thing that is being reasonably well done and it's really the only part of the long-term health monitoring which is being done well is looking at thyroid cancer for everybody who was under 20 in Fukushima Prefecture at the time of the disaster. They're having an initial ultrasound examination of their thyroid. The thyroid gland is just under the skin at the front of your neck. It's sort of easy to get at with an ultrasound machine. It's a pretty simple, pretty simple safe test. And that's quite sensitive for picking up nodules, lumps and, and, and cancer in the thyroid. And the consequences so, of that? So that's being done on a regular basis for everybody in Fukushima but because of all the loss of confidence in the government and because it's been very badly managed and results not being available for parents and very ham-fisted 
communication, a lot of people have lost confidence in that. So the follow-up rates with successive examinations are getting less. But it's already clear that in Fukushima compared with the national average that there's about a 20 to 50 times higher rate of thyroid cancer in children. Now some of that is no doubt because if you look hard you know, with these detailed ultrasound examinations, you'll find cancers that you wouldn't otherwise find that may never cause a problem and might actually go away, some of them. But what you can't explain by that idea is why in the most contaminated parts of Fukushima the rates of thyroid cancer are between two and five times higher than in the less contaminated parts and why when they come to surgery, there's been 145 cases that have now come to surgery, this is in young children. This is not, not a trivial thing. Most of them, 75 80% plus of them, have spread outside the thyroid gland to the local lymph nodes or in the neck or have spread beyond that. So, so these are not benign things. And that's being done because after Chernobyl there was this large, unexpectedly big and early epidemic of thyroid cancer in children. But for the rest of the population, you know, if you were serious about this, monitoring and providing for the long-term needs of an exposed population, anticipating the needs and, be, and responding to them, then what you would do is you would identify all of those who were exposed potentially to more than tiny doses, make a register of them, you'd get try and get some sense of how much radiation they were exposed to, and then you would monitor their health long-term and be able to link uh, those people with cancer registry, with death information, with health surveillance systems but even in Japan you would expect that these things would be in place but they're not. Most of the prefectures in Japan don't have a cancer registry. In Fukushima the cancer registry was only set up a couple of years before the disaster and its reporting is quite incomplete. So there could be a lot of disease occurring that if you don't look you won't you won't find and and that's a part of the problem. We we know that cancer and chronic disease are a, are a major long-term complication of radiation at any dose and the more you get the higher the risk but it's just not being adequately addressed. But surely if they'd been serious there would have been iodine available for all the children at the time of the accident. You're right. The one thing that you can well there's several things you can do if in a nuclear disaster sheltering to try and stay indoors and avoid the worst external exposures if there are clouds that are moving of radioactive material that are moving past you can get out of the way if possible you can avoid contaminated food and water as much as possible and the only specific measure sort of countermeasure that can be taken readily is is taking iodine and that works because your thyroid gland is essentially like the accelerator pedal on your your metabolism on how fast your body runs. And the hormone that it makes has iodine in it. So the reason why you need iodine is to make thyroid hormone is the principal reason why we need iodine in our diet. So if you give someone a dose of stable iodine, non-radioactive iodine, shortly before, preferably, or immediately after, it has to be within hours after, they're exposed to radioactive iodine, then you saturate the thyroid gland with with non-radioactive iodine and reduce the uptake of the radioactive iodine. And that wasn't effectively done. It was a whole combination of reasons. Mostly the iodine wasn't available. In some places where it was available, there were inappropriate concerns about possible side effects and there was 
confusion and delay. So it was there, but the order to use it wasn't given and it basically sat unused. So only a tiny fraction, less than 10% of the people who would have benefited from iodine, who would have gotten more than 50 millisieverts, been at risk of getting more than than, than 50 millisieverts of, of radiation to their thyroid, almost none of them got iodine, unfortunately. Well, six years later, what's happening with the food that was produced in that area, and particularly maybe from the sea as well? There has um, been a, a pretty reasonable program, actually, uh, eventually got going of, of food monitoring. So all local produce is being assessed, and, and when you go there, one of the saddest things is, you know, even the little supermarkets, you know, that, that sell local produce, you know, beautiful fresh food that looks looks lovely, uh, have to invest in these machines to, you know, measure the radioactivity of everything. And every plastic bag or every container of food has a sticker of how many becquerels per kilogram the carrots have today and the broccoli has. It's a pretty sad reminder that this stuff doesn't go away in a hurry. By and large, the levels have come down quite a lot in most foodstuffs. There are still local foods that shouldn't be eaten, like wild pigs and, and wild mushrooms um, are still pretty highly contaminated. The radioactivity doesn't stay in the one place, particularly cesium does move with water. It's a, it's a very wet environment. So particularly rice paddy fields and water reservoirs and lakes, uh, of which there are lots in Fukushima, are where the radioactivity tends to concentrate. And often there's a number of areas in Fukushima City where that are on the edge of town, at the edge of the mountains, and you know they keep decontaminating the soil and scraping it off and every time they do within a few weeks or a few months it's radioactive again because more washes down from the mountains and in the lakes the radioactivity can particularly accumulate and freshwater fish are also a particular problem they can have you know 10,000 times as much radioactivity as is in the water that they're swimming in because cesium behaves like potassium which every living cell you know is the main salt inside the cell so it gets taken up and recycled in the environment there's been concerns about marine contamination of fish and that's still an ongoing issue there is a large amount of water still hundreds of tons per day of of natural groundwater that leaks into the basement of the damaged reactor buildings picks up some radioactivity and then leaks back into the ground and eventually into the sea they're trying various ways to stop that with concrete walls with this um, really very ambitious and probably foolhardy sort of ice wall this where they drill pipes down into the soil all around the plant they seem to have gotten most of it working but I'm not in terms of freezing but there are gaps and I, I, I don't know how effective that is it's it's very ambitious and has never been done on this scale before they do certainly need to somehow try and contain the plants both from the bottom and the top and prevent this large movement of groundwater and leakage of contaminated water into the environment and into the ocean the radioactivity in the fish offshore has certainly gradually decreased it's bottom living fish that are the most contaminated but there's also just as there are effects on humans that have that have become evident, there are also effects on on plants and animals that have that have become evident. And you know we're not the only living things in the environment, and often it's much easier to monitor effects of radioactivity in animals and plants and birds because 
they still live in the contaminated areas and they just do what they do. And it's not confounded, you know, they don't smoke or drink or get depressed too much and don't have other things that complicate <laughs> assessing their health. And in every system that's been studied, like in Chernobyl, in birds, in spiders, in butterflies, uh, in large mammals, there are declines in numbers, declines in biodiversity, increased rates of abnormalities. And that's also been shown along the shore species in a whole range of different worms and shellfish and, and, and plants along the shore, both sides of, of north and south of the Fukushima plant declining with distance and radioactivity. There have there are abnormal and damaged and reduced numbers of, of, of shore communities of, of, of plants and animals. You know, we ignore these effects on, on other living creatures at our peril because um, they show us what is going to be happening to people as well. And all of them show effects, you know, in proportion to radiation dose without any discernible threshold below which there are no effects being apparent. Just in recent times, there have been figures of very, very high radiation levels, higher than even at the accident, and also 600 tonnes of hot molten core or coriums missing. What's the story? Well, the story with the plants is, is a bit of an opaque mess. Because it's so radioactive inside those, uh, those reactor buildings, anywhere close to the damaged reactors is a very dangerous environment and people essentially can't go there. So it's been very difficult to even get a look and see what, where the fuel is, what condition it's in and, and what might be done about it. We know that there have been meltdowns uh, at each of the, the reactors 1, 2 and 3 and you know, there's no great surprise that the molten fuel you know, has disintegrated, stuck on the sides of the of the reactor vessel melted through the bottom, you know, is in a congealed lumps of various size in different places down the down the bottom, very difficult to ever retrieve. There's a worry every time there's a an earthquake or a tsunami, and there was quite a large earthquake, seven and a half, um, there in late November, which actually shut down the power at the Daini, Fukushima Daini plant down the coast, the sort of twin of the Daiichi plant, which which wasn't functioning. Even a non-functioning plant, you know, is still vulnerable to, to damage. And, and, and I guess the big concern is that with these unstable masses of molten fuel, with damaged spent fuel ponds still containing large amounts of spent fuel, another earthquake or tsunami could, you know, could cause some significant damage and further radiological releases. It's not under control. And it's not over yet by any means. One other important thing for, for Australians to remember on, on this day is that is the links between the nuclear industry and how just as radioactivity knows no borders and spreads with the wind and, and the water once it's released, the nuclear fuel that caused this moves around the world in, in, in a global web that, that draws us all together. It was confirmed in the parliament, the Australian parliament, in response to, to questioning that uh, by the head of the Australian Nuclear and Safeguards um, Office that uranium from Australia was in each of the uh, reactors in Fukushima. So I think it, it behoves us to think and remember that rocks from Australia, much of it dug up on land with strong indigenous continuing custodianship at Ranger 
in particular against the deep and abiding and oft expressed opposition of those traditional owners has now caused so much misery and contamination and continues to to contaminate uh, large areas of northern Japan. So in a sense Australia is involved and Australians uh, ought to feel some responsibility because this has come as a direct result of material mind in Australia. Have there been any positive developments? Look, there have been some, and I think probably the most significant is that um, the biggest spent fuel pond, the one at number four reactor, which had the large, by far the largest amount of, of spent fuel in it, which was cracked and tilting, there was extreme concern internationally about how vulnerable that was to any further tremors. That would have been an absolute disaster if the water had drained or the power had been cut to that. So all of the fuel rods have been taken out of that and put into dry cask storage on site. So that's, you know, I breathed a significant sigh of relief when that was done. And that's Associate Professor Tillman Ruff speaking about the anniversary of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. It's coming up to six minutes to five. I'm speaking now with Neil Blake, who's the Port Phillip Baykeeper and Neil O. Should ask you first, what is the role of a baykeeper? Well, the Port Phillip Baykeeper role is an honorary position that is associated with the international group called Waterkeeper Alliance. The aim of that organisation is to have community advocates and activists, researchers, and protectors of waterways around the world. Quite a few hundred of them now in all sorts of places like Iraq and China and. Uh, Sri Lanka and South America and yeah, so it's, it's terrific really to be part of that sort of global network. I'm based at the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kilda though. My patch is obviously Port Phillip Bay but um, a big part of that is engaging with uh, people who live in the catchments around the bay. As a matter of fact the Echo Centre's been funded in the last 12 months and we've given a small seed funding from the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation to establish a network of activists from around uh, the catchments feeding into Port Phillip Bay. So that's an interesting exercise. Great to actually have an opportunity and a reason to focus on connecting up with people who might have common causes. The Werribee Riverkeeper and the Yarra Riverkeeper are part of that project. So we're uh, the three of us, our organisations, are the the core of the exercise. But um, more recently I've been having a chance to meet with other people in different parts of Melbourne, Greater Melbourne, uh, through a series of source reduction workshops that Tungarawa Blue have been convening in local council areas. So there's about seven of them happening. Half of them have already happened and there's another three or so to occur within the next month. And that's been a great opportunity just to meet with local government agencies and other governments, but uh, also um, community people who are interested in the whole topic about keeping our catchments healthy. The main point of each area is to develop a little pilot project, you know, so which will actually form partnerships between uh, community and government to uh, tackle a particular topic, whichever seems to be the most pressing or, but also the most doable as well in each area. And that's important, isn't it? Doable. Yeah, that's right. Don't sort of set your sort of sights too high because, uh, as I say, a big part of the exercise is just giving people an opportunity to work together, get to know each other and you know, uh, expand their networks in a, in a practical way and 
fantastic if there could be a party at the you know after 12 months because of the success that's been achieved and then that'll be a really good springboard for any future uh, actions and of course the different areas would have different priorities that's right yeah so it's interesting that cigarette butts seems to be a, a high topic i've been to four of the source reduction workshops so far bayside council melbourne Hobson's Bay and Wyndham, Butts have been uh, the priority project that's emerged in three of those areas. And uh, the other one in, in the city of Melbourne was um, coffee cups, disposable coffee cups. It's done with plastic bags for a while. The efforts in many places to reduce, that it doesn't seem to be working. What needs to be done? People just need to be talked through or worked through the... Um, the thinking process as to why do we actually need these <laughs> bags which are, are of limited use because the supermarket bags in particular are less than 35 microns so they're quite fine and, and they get shredded pretty rapidly when they're in the environment which is why much of what we collect on beaches and things are actually fragments of shopping bags but people come up with all sorts of reasons and I think it's as much as anything a cultural thing that people just have an expectation that they get a free bag and that's the the main barrier that people uh, sort of uh, encounter it without actually realising it you know that maybe uh, you could actually bring your own bag or (laughs) or or even pay a little bit for one you know so it's not just a single use throwaway mentality it's something that's part of our culture which which needs to be addressed it's really depressing to me if you go to a supermarket which i don't do very often and they're often young women and they've got a trolley they've got at least eight ten bags in that trolley and inside those bags there's more plastic bags, what do they do with them when they get them home? A big one is a lot of people say, well, that we use them as bin liners. So they must have big bins or (laughs) a lot of stuff to put in their bin. So some of them might get used a second time but and some of them could even be brought back to the supermarket where they do have some recycling schemes. But uh, quite a number, though, I would suspect are probably sitting lurking in cupboards somewhere or overflowing from... uh, car doors or whatever you know just uh, quite a number of them do escape into the environment you know but again people just need to have a think about well just many people use them to pick up their dog poo with that's another one I suppose that's in that sense if you've got a couple of dogs where you might need a few bags but uh, there are alternatives though to all of those sort of things the problem we've got even for people who feel that that's perfectly justified to have this influx of plastic bags is that there are serious environmental implications that they, these bags are escaping and they are getting swallowed by dolphins and turtles and all the rest of it you know and so the convenience that we might have doesn't really justify that kind of destruction you know but uh, if people aren't connected to the environment they're not really going to be likely to support any sort of change that will make life a little bit less convenient for themselves we definitely need to find ways of connecting community to their local environment, getting them on board. And just the fact that bags might be biodegradable, people will say, oh, that's good, they're biodegradable, I'm not doing any harm. That's not quite true either, is it? Well, uh, they may be biodegradable, but it will be over a time scale which is still going to be dangerous to any animals that might ingest them, you know. So (laughs) it's really only making people a sense of uh, safety and greenwashing the, the situation really but that's not actually addressing the key issue that they are still quite damaging in the environment. How did we get to this stage of 
millions and billions of plastic bags? Well, that's a good question, uh, Jen. Um, plastic is really only a very emerging product still. You know, back in the 60s, you know, my family, we didn't have a bin. So everything either went into the garden or we used things to light the fire or whatever. And uh, there wasn't a need for, for bins. Um, but the whole notion about packaging and for, for sanitary purposes, it seems like we sort of aspire to something that's new and, and terrific and progress and all that sort of stuff. And so something that came in plastic was pretty special. And, and it's very convenient and, and, and it's given to us for nothing, you know. So just how good is that? <laughs> well, maybe it needs to be that it's not for nothing. Well, that's right. I mean, that's, um, someone put it to me the other day that life is a bit like a bank account, you know. You can keep taking stuff out, but you actually need to put a bit back in after a while, you know. So, and the notion of sort of reciprocity and just a give and take is something that seems to be uh, a little bit missing in, in modern society. Putting a levy on plastic bags would be as one approach that has been adopted in the United Kingdom. In October 2015, a 5 Pence levy was introduced. It was applied to businesses that had 250 full-time staff or more, which effectively meant the largest supermarket. So there's seven of those in the in the UK. After six months, the plastic bag use, uh, people who had actually paid their 5p, it was um, 640 million bags had been actually sold. But that compared, though, with the previous year where the seven supermarkets, according to an estimate, had actually supplied uh, 7.64 billion bags that uh, had been actually used. So it was quite an enormous drop anyway. Um, so people obviously think twice when something actually has a price on it. Has that continued? It's still in, in effect, I believe. And what about other countries? sure about other countries but um, in Australia anywhere well in Australia we've had plastic bag bans in uh, Tasmania South Australia Northern Territory and the ACT Queensland is looking into the prospect of a, a ban possibly coming in in 2018 and there are a number of plastic bag free towns that have emerged in Victoria Torquay in particular would think is probably the heartland of the plastic bag-free Victoria, which is an organisation committed to having bags banned in Victoria. All of the farmers' markets apparently around Melbourne don't have plastic bags. Frankston, I believe, is, is also plastic bag-free, which is a good step. But it, it's challenging, though, the, unless the supermarkets, my understanding is that um, they are not happy about being targeted unless everyone else is targeted as well. And you can imagine that because, you know, if, if um, the major supermarkets actually uh, were required to ban bags and uh, but the other little IGAs, etc., in the, in the suburbs, people might turn to them rather than just and leave the major supermarkets behind. So. I think the major supermarkets have got such a, a wide capture on the market that surely they could afford to lose a few customers. I'm sure they don't see it that way, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> struggling, you know, yeah. and, and they want to give away, you know, a fresh piece of fruit to every child. Oh, no. <laughs> there is some movement in Victoria, but and it's, there's obviously some people who are dedicated to um, advance the discussion. So the supermarkets are not going to do it by, uh, you know, it's really a legislative. People from plastic bag free Victoria are having discussions with appropriate or relevant ministers so that's an ongoing discussion I guess and uh, it's a bit like the other thing is the container deposit legislation that's being discussed 
Boomerang Alliance have convened some meetings in Victoria in recent times to sort of crank up a campaign to put a deposit legislation for um, bottles and cans. I mean, that's something that used to exist in Victoria up into the 1970s and that was shafted because it was... I think the wording around at that time was that uh, was for hygiene purposes or something like that. Reusing things, you know, was uh, was just not a good practice. And and back in the old days, there was quite a lot of scout groups and others that actually um, managed to get some good revenue to fund their activities from that. But uh, that was scrapped entirely, and uh, so now there's been an ongoing discussion, particularly from. Boomerang Alliance at a national level who uh, are calling for the deposit legislation as it has existed in South Australia for forever <laughs> it seems and uh, I believe Northern Territory is moving into that area or has moved into that too. And that's Neil Blake who's the Port Phillip Bay Keeper and we'll hear more from Neil on the program next week but here he is again. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. And coming up in just a moment, an interview I recorded this morning with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Good morning, Kate, and um, that little bit of music we heard there was from a CD by Aziza Brahim, and I believe there are still a few tickets left for her performance at the Brunswick Music Festival Thursday week. Just remind us who she is and what she stands for. Aziza Brahim is a Sahrawi musician who has just suddenly sprung into the limelight. song that you heard is from a disc called Abar El Hamada, which means Across the Desert, and it has received many awards uh, last year when it was released. She was also a feature artist in Songlines magazine. She's been singing at WOMAD, Momad in the UK. She's coming to Womadelaide. Uh, next weekend then we're very lucky in Melbourne to have her coming to the Brunswick Music Festival she's a Sahrawi musician who grew up in the refugee camps in southwest Algeria in 1975 when the Moroccans invaded she and her mother escaped 
but her father stayed fighting in the territory that became the occupied territory. He survived the war, but she was never able to see him again. He has subsequently died, and that expresses part of the continuing plight of the Sahrawis that they have this divided population with members on each side of a military wall. When she was coming to secondary education, she was offered a scholarship to Cuba, which she took. It's quite a hardship for them to leave their families, but the Sahrawis value education, and so a number of them do go and take up this offer from Cuba. It was right at the time when the Soviet Union was falling apart, the Berlin Wall had come down, and there were sanctions on Cuba. So at the conclusion of her secondary studies, she applied to do a degree in music, but was unfortunately turned down. So she had to uh, take her disappointment on board and just go back to the camps. But there she was able to work with other musicians because she just loved music so much, kept developing her own musical talents and skills, ended up then going to Spain where she was able to meet with other musicians there and form a group and start recording her CDs. This is the second group of recordings, the two earlier ones that she did in not such quite good conditions but this is with Glitterbeat which is a better uh, recording company and she's got two discs with them. First album was called Sutak and this is the one called Abar El Hamada as I said and she is now definitely getting the title of the Queen of the Sahara Blues. Yeah. And if people would like to go to the concert? If you want to go to the concert, just get on the um, Brunswick Music Festival website and you'll find there where you can book Thursday the 16th of March at Brunswick Town Hall. An issue also going back this time in 1984 when the then Organisation of African Unity admitted the Sahrawi Republic as a member and as a result Morocco left. Now the organisation has a new name and I'm presumably other things as well. Morocco has decided to join and we're admitted without the vote. Why did that happen? Morocco had been preparing for this for years. I mean they've had lots of attempts at trying to get Western Sahara chucked out of the Union without any success. So this time they just got to the point of, if you can't beat them, let's join them. They have been preparing for over a year by going around all the African countries, trying to persuade the African countries of their point of view. They uh, have made lots of promises of technical cooperation and development, building schools, hospitals, phosphate uh, factory in one, one country in eastern Africa. Yeah, just coincidentally on that, I saw a story in the French press about a huge catering vehicle that had been specially tailored in France for the King of Morocco, capable of feeding 800 people. <laughs> I can't understand, can't imagine how they can do that. 
going to replace the current one. I didn't know that all this was going on, but he was providing banquets for these people. And he had this mobile kitchen that was travelling with the whole retinue. So that just gives you some little picture of the effort that the Moroccans have gone to to woo support in the African Union. And I think when they could see that although the Western Sahara has great support there, there were a lot of people who came to be persuaded that it was better to sort the matter out inside than outside. Even people supporting Western Sahara were thinking that. And so they could see that the voting figures would have favoured Morocco anyway. So they didn't actually pass to the vote. And what does it mean for Western Sahara? Frankly, does mean a lot more struggle now within the African Union because although Morocco is now bound by what is called the Constitutive Act, which is like the constitution of the uh, African Union, which has two very important clauses relating to this matter. One is that it favours self-determination and the other is prohibits colonising another country in Africa. So it is rather surprising, really, that Morocco was allowed to say they accepted that without any conditions put upon them. In my personal view, I think they should have asked uh, Morocco to hold a referendum of self-determination or anything at all to just show willing that they were going to enact these two important precepts that they said they were adopting. What has been named the Galkarat Crisis? Why is this small village in the far southwest of Western Sahara the site of a crisis? What happened, uh, as I alluded earlier to the wall, there is this wall that runs pretty much north to south, but it also follows the border round to the west uh, on, the, on the southern border between Western Sahara and Mauritania. And on each side of the wall, well, after you've got the landmines, 200 metres of landmines on either side, you get to this area that they call the buffer zone between the Moroccan-held part of Western Sahara and the part held by the Polisario Front with the independence movement of Western Sahara. Morocco decided to get into that buffer zone and to make a road all the way through to the capital of Mauritania, Nouakchott. They said it was to do with controlling illicit commerce of different kinds, black market, uh, black market in vehicles, black market in drugs, and all kinds of other commodities. But the Sahrawis and other observers believe it was just trying to normalise the situation and pretend the wall isn't there because the Moroccan way of trying to deal with their land grab, their continuing land grab, is basically to try and get everybody to turn a blind eye to what's going on and to pretend that there's no occupation, there's no military there, we can't see the 100,000 
troops on the wall. They just don't exist, ha-ha. But they wanted to just make uh, tarmac this road and they had therefore breached the wall and gone into this buffer zone with their tarmac machines. So the Polisario Front call that a breach of the ceasefire where uh, those areas are supposed to be kept free and there was a big debate about it. The uh, mobilisation of troops on both sides, then it sort of went into abeyance a little bit in December but just more recently they've started again doing things and with a new Secretary-General in office since the 1st of January, Antonio Guterres from Portugal. He is, if you like, being sort of tested now. He had a phone conversation with the King of Morocco. I heard different versions of whether who initiated the phone call, but they both talked about this issue, and Morocco decided to be a parent, big good boy, and they said that they would withdraw all their troops and everything that was theirs in this buffer zone, which apparently they've done to a distance of about 50 metres over the border, <laughs> which the Sahrawis say is not far enough. One of those difficult situations where they put themselves in the right, but they're actually still in the wrong. What about the government of Mauritania? What, what's their position? I'm not too sure, frankly. I think that they probably quite happy to have a properly metalled road myself, but that's speculation. They've kept pretty silent on the whole issue, as a matter of fact. Well, something quite different. We all know marathon running is not for everyone. The usual distance is 42 k's, but this one I'm talking about has mini marathons, 21, 10, 5 k's and a children's race. It's definitely not for the faint-hearted, and it's in the desert in Algeria. It is, and it's it's very extreme. I've heard from people who've been. Event. This is an annual event. Or it's an annual event. It's been going for quite a number of years now, for 12 years, and we've had two Australians in it, and they found it pretty hard. It is properly measured out by the Marathon Authority, whatever they are. They come and sort of measure it out properly and put markers, but it's very hard sometimes to keep to the track because it's a very um, nondescript kind of desert. There's no landmarks much, and there aren't people all the way. And it's hot and it's very windy often, and there can be sandstorms, a really testing marathon for people who like to do extreme sports. It was a couple of weeks ago. What were the results? Do you know? Frankly, I haven't been able to find out. I did look to try and find out who won it, but uh, it's off, usually an overseas marathon runner who wins, but there was a Sahari runner who won one year. And, uh, of course, the whole idea of the marathon is to give awareness to what's happening in the camps in Algeria. Exactly, exactly. And just to get more international news uh, going about it and 
to let people see for themselves. And the runners are encouraged to have sponsorship for their runs, which will contribute to some humanitarian project in the camps. I think it has had the effect of stimulating interest in athletics by the young people. There are quite a few now who are able to compete at different sports on an international uh, level. Yeah. You could imagine it'd be pretty hard to do your training and your sporting activities in a desert. Oh, well, it is because there's no shade, absolutely no shade. You wouldn't be able to keep it going all year because when the temperatures, I suppose they do it at night, but then that's got hazards as well. But even at night it can be uh, 35, 40 degrees, but it heats up to fi- over 50 sometimes in the daytime in the summer. The winter is quite pleasant and the nights can be quite cool, but there can always be high winds and sandstorms. And this is a life that hundreds of thousands of people have been forced to live for many, many years. Absolutely, and they, uh, needless to say, find it harsh. It takes toll on their health. There are a lot of problems with eyes, throats, lungs and diet. Food they can get is supplied by the World Food Programme and it's a very basic five commodities like lentils, uh, rice, oil, wheat or barley. They make their own couscous from that. Pasta, maybe separately, they do have pasta there. Occasionally they can get extra rations through the ECHO program, the European Union program, maybe some tinned sardines, dried milk from the European Milk Lake. You know, but there's very few things, very, very monotonous diet for them. And is it true that the Moroccan authorities occasionally or more than occasionally give the figures to the UN which downplays the number of refugees in the camp which means that the rations are even smaller? That's right. One of the ways that the uh, propaganda war has been conducted is through the, the food. They want to try and starve them out of their stand in the desert. So the Moroccans are always asking for there to be a census of refugees because they claim that there aren't as many as the World Food Programme, the the, uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees and the different authorities that are working with them. They they want to say that there's more. Well, the people on the ground are better placed, frankly, to know how many people there are than the Moroccans who say they've counted the number of tents from the satellite. (laughs) and they have calculated the population that way. They were successful in reducing the amount of food supplied, sometimes to the people in need. The military men have never been supplied. The people who are uh, Sahrawis who are are stationed on their military posts, they don't get world food support. But they try and reduce it, and so then there's... The the children suffer, the pregnant women suffer because they don't necessarily get the right diet even if they're supposed to be getting a supplementary thing. There is a small, well, massive, in my view, but a massive uh, called egg farm, you know, uh, battery battery hens, yes, uh, supplied by one of the Spanish regions. Uh, It's climate controlled so that the chickens don't die in the heat. They produce 10,000 eggs a day, which 
I've been in this shed, it's enormous. But 10,000 eggs doesn't go very far among 160,000 refugees. So that is restricted to the pregnant women, maybe the school. And sadly, I have eaten an omelette made with those eggs because they give a lot to the guests when they go. Guests are very well treated and it's embarrassing because one wishes that the Saharawis would have it. We can manage very well without on, on uh, starvation rations for a few days. In fact, it'd probably do us good. The other, another issue is the off-again and off-again civilian trial of activists. They were in a military court. They were, they were charged and they were convicted. But now there is a civilian trial, but it seems to be very difficult to get it actually going. That's right. I mean, it's, it's, it is a very stop-start thing. The first session was on the 26th of December. One might have thought cynically chosen because the Europeans would be busy with their festivities, festive season. However, they nevertheless ra- raised a big contingent who went as international observers to that trial. All the time was wasted on preliminary matters so it was postponed then until in January and another hearing was held in January then that was postponed now until the 13th of March so that's coming up uh, next week we hope that some progress will be made this time up until now the prisoners themselves have not been able to hear the proceedings because they've been held in a kind of glass cage so they can see what's going on, but they don't fully know what's going on because they can't hear. Some of them asked to attend, but they were put in a place where they had to stand. Not all of them are well enough to stand for long periods of time because uh, having conducted several hunger strikes, not been medicated properly for the conditions that they suffer, uh, a lot of them are actually pretty weak. And this trial is from 2009 protest camp. That's right. The Gedei Mizik protest camp was held outside El Ayun. This time, one difference is that Saharawi lawyers and Moroccan lawyers working for the Saharawi side are limited in many ways in what they can do and say. But if there is a cooperation agreement with the old colonial power in Morocco, with France, that is, French lawyers can get leave to speak in a court proceedings under Moroccan law. And so a number of French lawyers have been taking part. And one of the demands they are making is that a proper investigation would be held into the torture that has been claimed by on the part of the prisoners. Their original conviction in the military court was on the basis of confessions made under torture and signed blindfold. They didn't even see what was written on this so-called confession. So that was a very major flaw in legal flaw in that first trial. Since that trial, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture has met some of these people. They've, he's investigated claims of the torture and he says that a proper investigation should be carried out. 
So that's one thing they're asking. Another thing they're asking is that the trial should be moved, transferred to Western Sahara because under various international conventions it is the correct procedure is that a trial should be conducted in the country where the alleged offence took place. I don't know whether they'll have success with that. Another demand is that the prisoners should be released, that pending the first trial has been quashed, and so pending the retrial, they should be allowed free, to go free. Morocco isn't cooperating with that either, so we will see how it goes. And the Australia Western Sahara Association, ORSA, has made a petition signed by a number of people at the Brunswick Music Festival on, at Sydney Road on Sunday asking the Moroccan Minister of Justice to address exactly those three points, that the prisoners should be released, that there should be investigation into the torture and that the trial should be transferred to Western Sahara. And that was Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Honduras, and indeed the world, lost a wonderful woman, a woman who was an inspiration and role model, when her life was tragically cut short by four bullets, assassinated in her own home in La Esperana, western Honduras, at 1am in the morning of the 2nd of March 2016. Berta Caceres was an award-winning human rights defender and environmental rights campaigner, winner of the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize the previous year. Yesterday I spoke with Beverly Bell, the founder of Other Worlds. Beverly has worked for more than three decades as an organiser, advocate and writer in collaboration with social movements in Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa and the US. Beverly is currently in Honduras and I spoke with her by Skype and asked her first about the life Berta was forced to live in her own country and the situation in that country, Honduras, that led to her untimely death. I will break that down into several parts. Berta's life was one of complete and utter and total commitment to the cause of justice for Indigenous peoples, of whom she was one, for the protection of Mother Earth, which she and other Lenka people did not view as separate from themselves, and for democracy. And for this, she started the organization COPIN, which is the Civic Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations, when she was in very early years. COPIN is marking, I believe it's 24th birthday this month. Berta is marking actually her 44th birthday this week, so there's the math. Uh, she built this organization. She worked with the indigenous communities. She led them to many, many victories over the years. Copine stopped about 45 illegal forestry concessions on their land. They stopped five dams that were being erected on their sacred rivers 
in violation of the United Nations International Labor Organization's Convention 169, which guarantees free, prior, and informed consent by Indigenous peoples before any development may happen on their land. Berta Ledkopin in winning communal land titles for Indigenous peoples for the first time of anyone in Honduras. They got the Honduran constitution changed so that it also recognized the right to free, prior, and informed consent for Indigenous peoples. Of course, that's never been respected, but they did win that victory. She has done more than the next 50 people combined in a very short life to make a difference, and her legacy involves that, and it also involves changing the way actually the whole nation of Honduras views Indigenous peoples from being simply poor folks who don't really deserve a voice are to be trampled on and to have and are to have their lands taken to a body of people who are full of dignity and full of pride and full of wisdom which needs to be heard and full of rights which must be respected and to also really change the face of Central America. I should also add that the changes that Berta made in terms of the recognition of the rights of indigenous peoples was not just in Honduras. She was an international figure and changed that view all over the world and especially throughout Central America. And she did the same in terms of rights for women and for LGBTQ people. Copin is the only rural organization I know in all of the Americas, excluding the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil, that actually has a sexual equality commission. And her voice there, again, has gone far beyond national boundaries and has really impacted the vision and expression of people in other parts of the region. Why is Honduras a lot worse than other countries in Latin America? It's called the deadliest place in the world to be an environmental activist, the treatment of the indigenous peoples. What's been happening in Honduras that's made it that way? The United States government, to answer briefly. And the reason for this, Jen, is that when revolutionary movements surged in the late 70s, well, going back to the 60s, but especially in the 70s in Central America. Um, The U.S., of course, could not allow this to happen in their backyard. And so they took over Honduras as their foothold for the whole region in terms of fighting the spread of socialism and the spread of self-determination and the spread of rights and true democracy. The U.S. used Honduras as a base for its Contra War against the sovereign nation of Nicaragua, which then was led by the Sandinistas, and it also used Honduras as a base for its death squad to go against revolutionaries in El Salvador and Guatemala, which both had their own struggles. Since that time, the U.S. has continued to keep its foot on Honduras and use it to uh, maintain its power in the region. And this has worked out quite nicely for the oligarchy and for the other members of the right who control a lot of power and a lot of land. 
um, because, of course, it's in their interest, too, to keep down a, an assertive people. So the U.S. Jan today maintains between 10 and 12 military bases in the country. I can't say for sure how many because the number changes all the time. The U.S. will fill one base with its employees, with its military, and then something will happen in another part of Honduras, and the U.S. will shift its military to another base. But basically, the U.S. is in every base in Honduras, and every year the U.S. government gives hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid to Honduras. And I can't be more precise than that because although we have been able to track some of the military aid, a lot of it is hidden in various programs and a lot of it is covert. So we do not know that. What happened in 2009 in Honduras has really made it much worse in terms of human rights and the protection of life than it was before. And again, we can thank the United States government and the reason is that, again, largely going back to Berta Cáceres, there began to be a strong uprising by rural and indigenous peoples demanding land reform and demanding protection of their territories. And there were many, many movements involved, but Berta herself actually had the ear of President Mel Zelaya, who was the last freely elected president that Honduras had. Now, he came to power as part of the oligarchy, as part of the land-owning class, and he was not in any way aggressive. But once he got into power, he began to see things a bit differently, and Berta really was able to have good access to him, and she deeply impacted. So he began to be open, just slightly open, to the idea of land reform. Well, this flipped out the U.S. government and the large landholders and the other members of the very fierce right wing in this country, and they organized a coup d'etat against him. The U.S. was involved notably in the person of Hillary Clinton, who has repeatedly bragged about her role in keeping Zelaya out of office after he was ousted in a military coup. Since that time, there have been two rounds of presidential elections, but both were ruled as being fraudulent by almost all powers in the world, except for, notably, the United States and the Canadian government, governments. And I should mention that Canada has a large investment in keeping the region quiescent, i.e. repressed also, because um, a lot of the mining and, gold and uh, heavy metal and gold companies who are in Honduras are Canadian. So basically, this is a dictatorship. It's not called that openly, but it's an unelected government that rules with complete and total impunity and absolute lack of accountability. And the one thing that it cannot tolerate is a challenge to its rule. And I think it is safe to say that there is no organization in Honduras that has more challenged its rule by demanding democracy than Copin under Berta Cáceres. And for that reason, she was killed exactly one year ago this week, and more than 90 members of her group have been killed. But hundreds and hundreds of other indigenous peoples who are organized have also been killed. More recently, just two weeks ago, a leader of the Tulpan people was assassinated 
And yes, as you say, Global Witness, the wonderful international human rights group, just found for a second year in a row that Honduras is the most dangerous country in the world to be an environmental activist. And most of those environmental activists are rural indigenous peoples. And of course, it's not only those indigenous and peasant activists who are the targets. It's journalists, it's LGBT, it's lawyers, it's human rights defenders, anyone who sticks their head up. Is that right? Anyone. Even feminists in this grossly patriarchal country, it's anyone. It's workers who are organized into unions. Yes, the repression has been vast. It's been vast and it's being publicly blamed on the gangs and such, which is true. There's horrible violence in gangs, and that's primarily because the U.S. has so militarized the country. There are guns to be found everywhere, and there's a whole air of unity. But what I have seen all over Latin America, I'm sure it's true in other parts of the world, but my focus has primarily been Latin America, is that the single greatest threat to peoples in different non-industrialized nations these days has been extraction, by which I mean logging, damming, mining, um, and other forms of development like agribusiness and in many cases um, megatourism. And so, of course, people rise up and resist. That is a cause for automatic repression. So if you consider, if you look at what sectors are being mainly touched by the repression all over the region? It's environmental defenders, which again primarily means rural and indigenous peoples. The Goldman Prize is given every year to five leading environmental actors from around the world. And it's very telling, Jen, in their 25 or so years of existence, they have never had a winner be hurt. And in the past 12 months, two of their winners, one of whom was Berta, two of their winners were assassinated and a third almost assassinated and was shot. I think that that gives a very accurate indicator of the level of danger rising against people fighting corporate extraction. You are listening to Beverly Bell from the organization Other Worlds in the United States, speaking about her friend Berta Caceres, who was assassinated in Honduras one year ago. One of the main foci of Berta was the planned dam in her area. Has that dam gone ahead? No, actually it has not gone ahead. The dam was one of many, many dams that Copine has fought. But in this case, the dam called the Awazarka Dam, that the richest family in Honduras, backed by international funding from the Dutch Development Bank, the Finnish Development Bank, originally the World Bank, but they had to pull out due to protests. Originally, Sino Hydro, which is the largest dam company in the world, which is Chinese-owned, and they had to pull out due to protests. And also the Central American Bank for Economic Integration, why this dam was different is that it was in a community called Rio Blanco, which happens to be an extremely militant, extremely organized community that belongs to Copin. And so 
it fought back and fought back and fought back. And Copin invested a lot of time and energy and Berta herself did. And this was just really too much for the richest family in Honduras who owns the dam officially and whom we know to be involved in the killing. And it was really too much for the Honduran government who just despised Berta with everything in their being because of her rebelliousness, her brilliance, her organizing strategies. And so in this case, they decided enough is enough. They weren't going to tolerate this anymore. And together with the Honduran government and the U.S. government, as I mentioned, they killed her. Who's been charged with her death? Eight people have been arrested in the case of her death. And they are all young men in their late teens and early 20s who are obviously hitmen. No one has been charged with her death, nor, I should add, the attack on Gustavo Castro, which also happened that night in her home, Gustavo being basically her Mexican homologue. He is an extraordinary environmental leader from Mexico who was giving a talk, excuse me, a training on environmental defense with Berta on that date. March 2nd. No one has been charged in either case, and the Honduran government has been working very hard, and the U.S. government too, I should add, to keep attention off of the intellectual authors, whom, again, we know to go to very, very high levels in the Honduran government. So they are now trying to say, well, look what a great job we're doing. We've arrested eight suspects. Well, Great. Maybe those guys each got $100. I'm certainly not trying to excuse them, but they are not the intellectual authors. And incidentally, Jan, in October of last year, the United States government certified Honduras for having made human rights progress and said that therefore 50% of the U.S. military aid could continue to flow. Well, of course, that just gave a green light to more repression. In fact, in the month after that, declaration by the U.S. Congress, it was the Congress actually, all four of the main indigenous and rural organizations in Honduras either had leaders assassinated or suffered attacks on those leaders, that is attempted assassination. No one has been charged and there is a big effort so that no one be charged. None of the people who were actually involved in this gross killing and attack also on Gustavo be charged. And of course, Gustavo was forced out of the country. Yes, and he has just made the decision to live with his family a second year in Europe. And that is because the seventh person who was arrested a few weeks ago was arrested not only in his native Mexico, but in the very small town where he was born and raised. So it is clearly not at all safe for him to be in his country. He has never, in fact, returned to his home in Chiapas since the date of the killing last year because it's so easy for Honduran hitmen to slip over the border. And I should mention that Gustavo is really one of the highest public enemies of the Honduran government because he was the sole witness to Berta's murder. He says that without him, it would have been a perfect assassination, but he is really a thorn in their side. Uh, without him, they could have just said it was a crime of passion, which is what they first said. It was jealousy within Copine, which they also said, but Gustavo to offer a different view. So they would love for him to be gone from the face of the earth as well. 
Is it true that he was badly injured and they actually jailed him or held him in custody before deporting him? Yes. They were surprised to find him in the home that night. They had not realized that he was there. In fact, he'd only gone there because he was staying, in fact, in the very house where I now live, the Copine headquarters home, and there was no internet here. So he had gone to Berta's house on the night of March 2nd just to call home to his beloved family on Skype. And then it was very late, and since it's so dangerous, dangerous in this country. People try not to drive late. So Berta said, why don't you just sleep in the guest room, which he did. When the assassins entered, there may have been four or five, we're not sure. One who came into the room was apparently quite surprised to see Gustavo there. The man pointed at Gustavo's forehead, but missed. And the gun, the bullet rather, grazed Gustavo's ear, it actually missed his skull by, I don't know, maybe a quarter of an inch, an eighth of an inch, and took off part of Gustavo's ear. And Gustavo had raised his hand when he saw the bullet coming at him and put his hand up to his face. And so the bullet cut off the top part of his hand as well. Fortunately, he's still able to use that hand. He was then taken down in total violation of international law and held first for five days in and out of the public ministry, which is meant sort of to be the Ministry of Social Affairs, but is really just a ministry of repression. And he was held there and actually tortured. We were not allowed to say this while he was still in the country because of the danger, but he was denied sleep. He was kept up and interrogated for three days straight. He was not allowed to change his clothes and those clothes were caked with dried blood, both from him and his dead, precious friend who had died in his arms. Berta and he had been very, very close friends for about 20 years, as had I. We, were, we traveled and worked together very closely, but he had to remain in those clothes. He was then taken to Mexico City, but was not allowed to leave the country, again, in contravention of all international law, because there was no charge against him nor any reason to keep him, and he was forced to stay there for a month, during which time the government, we're quite sure it was the government, also tried to kill his brother, Oscar, who had come to help out. Oscar opened a sealed bottle of water in the hotel room where he was staying, and it was poisoned. And Oscar was rushed to the hospital and very nearly died. So, yes, Gustavo's life has been changed in every imaginable way. And he continues to suffer both physically from his injuries as well as psychologically. You can imagine it's been very difficult for him. Have other members of Kuping been treated in similar ways in recent times? Well, yes, the coordinator who took over Copin after Berta was killed, a man named Tomas Gomez, um, has had, I believe, four assassination attempts on him since Berta's death. After, I should mention, he was first held by the Honduran government and interrogated for several days, though no charge was brought against him. They even took his shoes, and being a very poor man, he only had one pair of shoes and walked around barefoot until someone lent him another pair of shoes many sizes too big. He's been the worst impacted, and it's really a miracle that he is alive at all, given the uh, attempts that have 
come against him. Two others have, in fact, been killed just in the year since Berta was, and many more have been arrested and attacked, beaten, threatened, anyone associated with Copine. For example, I received two assassination attempts only on my third day of moving here, which I did two weeks after Berta's killing. No one is safe in this country with this heinous, unaccountable, unelected government. Is it possible to have celebrations of her life in public or is that too dangerous? No, actually, we just finished four days of an extraordinary celebration of Berta's life, both on March 2nd, which was the first anniversary of her killing, and then on March 4th, which would have been her 45th birthday. Uh, There was a demonstration in Tegucigalpa on March 2nd with between 800 and 1,000 people present. There were delegations here in La Esperanza, which is the headquarters of Copin. It's a small rural area, uh, entirely indigenous. I believe that there were 16 different countries represented here for three days of fora on autonomous lands that Copin controls, of a vigil in front of the public ministry led by Tomas, the head of Copin, who just one year ago, exactly that day, had been inside as a prisoner. There was a mass. There was a vigil at Berta's mother's house. There were just all sorts of uh, oh visits to the cemetery and many acts of mourning and recommitment to the struggle. And what's amazing is that nobody was violently attacked, not even at the demonstration, which is almost a Copine demonstration to suffer no retribution. But the reason is that the international community, that is not of governments but of friends, has just responded so beautifully that the government has not been able to enact all of the violence that it would love to enact to just take Copine out altogether and do away with them as they have completely done away with some other rural movements by having killed almost all of the members. But people like you, Jan, have kept Berta's spirit alive and the work of Copine alive. And for this reason, the government has actually had to really take a step back in its plans to destroy the movement. So, yes, there was beautiful celebration. People were so inspired. There were children's presentations and video displays and concerts, and it was just amazing. It was so amazing, and you could just tell how inspired and motivated both the Hondurans and the international friends were to keep the struggle going. Were any members of the organization which organizes the Goldman Environmental Peace Prize there at that time? No, they were not present here, but they have been quite active in stepping up against the actions of the Honduran government. And I would like to say that we, who are from the U.S., for better or for worse, and these days certainly for worse, are very, very pleased that this year on March 2nd, again, the first anniversary of Berta's assassination, a bill was introduced in the U.S. Congress called the Berta Cáceres Human Rights Act. This is the second year it's been introduced, calling for U.S. military aid to be suspended until such time as the Honduran government makes improvements in human rights. We don't know how it will fare, 
but we are very excitedly pushing it forward because, of course, at the very least, it generates a lot of continued attention on Honduras and the fact that it's the U.S. government that has caused the, the treacherous state of affairs here. You just never know. We don't know all of Trump's foreign policy plans yet, how the Republican Congress, which is in many ways very nationalistic, many of whom are not interested in spending any money overseas to help other countries or to hurt other countries. We just don't know how it will play out. We are mobilized by that fact as well, the introduction of this bill this year. Beverly, I'm wondering if her daughter will be carrying on in her footsteps as Bertha did from her mother. Bertha has two daughters who are carrying on in her footsteps, two of the most incredible women that I know. They are, I think, 23 and 24. They are brilliant. They are brave, dignified, effective at pretty much everything that they do. And they have been carrying the flame. They've been traveling all over the world, speaking here and there, testifying to various Congresses and to the United Nations. They have just been fearless and tireless. Berta is named after Berta, as you say as was the grandmother who herself, as was her grandmother, Berta Cáceres' mother, who was herself a fierce fighter for justice. And then the second daughter who is involved in carrying on the struggle is named Laura. And they are just extraordinary and copine, and we all are very, very lucky to have them. They are uh, sparks of their mother. Is it possible to say how... You'll remember her in a very short space of time, or is there just too much to her life that it's too hard to put it all together? No, I can. There sure is a lot. As I said, we were together so much for, I think, the last 19 years of her life. Uh, She lived with me for eight months in the U.S. We traveled, worked together, did all sorts of things together. But the thing that most struck me about Berta was her integrity. And I once asked her, because I've looked it up in many dictionaries, if she knew, because she didn't speak hardly any English, but if she knew if there was a translation for integrity in Spanish, and she said, yes, it would be translated as coherencia, which means coherence, by which she meant being consistent in your words, in your actions, in your beliefs, in your treatment of your community and of your family and in what you commit your life to. And Berta Cáceres was coherent. Berta Cáceres had integrity. Thank you so much, Beverly, for spending time with me today. Jan, I'm so grateful to you for keeping this and so many other wonderful stories alive. You do such powerful work, and my goodness, we need voices of unfettered journalism like yours today more than ever. And that was Beverly Bell from Other Worlds speaking about her friend Berta Cateras who was assassinated one year ago in Honduras. That's all for me. I've gone over a wee bit but done by law here in just a moment. Bye for now.